Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. You got to accentuate the positive feeling. Minate the negative, latch on to the affirmative. Don't mess with Mr. In Between. You gotta spread joy up to the maximum. Bring gloom down to the minimum. Have faith. A pandemonium liable to walk upon the scene. Welcome to Blog Talk Radio, and thank you for tuning in to another edition of Positively Affirmative. This is the show where we affirm you, our listening audience, with education, information, and resources in the areas of self-care, career development, business building, and wealth consciousness, challenges, and solutions. I am your host, Katrina Jones, Prosperity Life Coach of Satari Life Skills Institute, and today our show topic is Spiritual Journey from Addiction to Recovery. Um, and, you know, in the United States, addiction is a is an issue, a problem that affects, you know, the, the, the world. But today we're going to focus on um, the United States, and um, I'd like to just give a, one or two statistics. Um, our population, based on the U.S. Census Bureau um, in 2012, was estimated at 303 million Americans, and in... The 2010, um, the National Survey on Drug Use and Health um, did a survey uh, that was sponsored by SAMHSA, or Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Uh, they surveyed 67,500 persons who were non-institutionalized, which um, probably means that they weren't in um, treatment facilities or um, or mental health facilities. And um, out of that survey, um, you know, it was determined that in 2010, an estimated um, 22.6 million Americans aged 12 or, or older, you know, were currently um, users of illicit uh, drugs. And so drug use um, and abuse is a growing problem um, for individuals as well as families. Today, uh, we are very, very honored to have with us uh, Shari Sims, uh, who's worked in the field of substance abuse since 1996, working with both men and women who have been involved in the criminal justice system. She is currently employed as a program manager providing substance abuse services to those who have been court-ordered for treatment. Shari holds a bachelor's degree from Cleveland State University in Urban Services Administration and a master's degree from Ashland Theological Seminary in Clinical Pastoral Counseling. And she is a she is licensed as a chemical dependency counselor three, and a professional counselor in the state of Ohio. 
Shari obtained her foundation for working in the field of substance abuse from Cuyahoga Community College uh, in, in uh, community mental health technology. So, Shari, welcome, welcome, welcome to our show today. Thank you, Katrina. Um, thank you for inviting me to, you, to be a part of your show. And I know that you are doing great things to bring information, knowledge, and understanding to those who tune in to listen to you, as well as giving them the opportunity to increase their awareness of some of the topics and the issues that arise. And also I want to take time to thank your listeners for being faithful and returning and spreading the word that this show is open and it's enlightening and it offers inspiration, motivation, understanding, and knowledge. And it is my pleasure that I am here to share just a little bit about substance abuse and recovery. Thank you so much, Shari. Thank you. You know, um, I you know, I do want to thank you for being here. And, you know, one of the reasons that um, I was so happy um, that you were willing to do this show is because um, you are currently um, a clinician um, in the field of substance abuse. And, you know, when I when I hear of uh, substance abuse and chemical dependency, I, you know, I think, you know, I'm, I'm always um, thinking of, you know, the problems that, that people face and, um you know, day in and day out, you know, with this issue. But I want to ask you, you know, what is it about the field of substance abuse that inspires you, you know, that inspires you um, as a clinician? Well, Katrina, I have been working in the field of substance abuse for over 17 years, and what motivates me most is knowing that treatment works. Statistics show that treatment works, and even when it's mandated, treatment works. And statistics also show that the longer an individual stays in treatment or that is engaged in treatment, the better the outcome is. So the success rate is risen when a person engages and stays in treatment and gets the right amount of treatment and the, the right amount of time in treatment. So I'm, I'm motivated by that. Um, and also when I began to think about recovery, it's not so much the treatment itself, but it is recovery. I am excited about recovery because I know people can and do recover. And I've worked with, I'm not going to say millions, but I've worked with a lot of people over the years who I've had the pleasure of sitting down with and allowing them to tell me their stories and what substance abuse and substance use has done in their lives as well as in their family's lives. But I've also been a witness of their recovery and the things that they have gone on to do. So I'm excited about recovery, and I know that recovery works, and I know that families do recover. So there is hope. Mm-hmm. You, you were right. There is hope. There's great hope. Mm-hmm. And I and I, I know that you you walk the walk um, because every time you and I have a conversation about recovery or about the work that you do, you know, I can just hear the excitement in your voice, just like I'm hearing it now. <laughs> so I, I, like I, I said, believe I that. I am truly, 
I am truly motivated and excited about recovery because I take mm-hmm. it as a, a an honor that God would allow me to be a part of someone's healing and watching them change because you do begin to see the change in people. They begin to smile. They begin to, to live again, laugh again, and love again. So I'm excited to be a part of this process of change that occurs in, in individuals' lives. Wow, that's that's beautiful. That is beautiful. Well, I want you to um, kind of walk us through, um, you know, what what is, what is what is addiction? You know, for well, those who may not know, uh-huh. that is a, a a powerful question because the American Medical Association has classified addiction as a disease, and a lot of people don't understand or know that it is a disease and that it is a treatable disease. Society and and a lot of our cultural beliefs have looked at addiction in a negative or derogatory way. We have stereotyped those individuals who may have a, a problem with substance use. We may call them drug addicts. We'll call them winos. We'll call them junkies. We'll call them crackheads. We'll just call people a, a, a lot of negative names in identifying them and their substance use which is very harmful and hurtful to the individual, especially as they go through recovery. So with the American Medical Association classifying disease as an addiction, it is, um, uh, I'm sorry, classifying substance abuse as a disease which affects the body's normal functioning where it becomes psychologically, physically, emotionally, as well as spiritually impaired. Many characteristics of the of substance use or substance abuse, and it's used interchangeably. You hear someone say addiction. You hear someone say substance dependence. You hear dependency. So all of those words are interchangeable, but it all means the same thing. So if I bounce back and forth, it's just trying to give a clear picture on substance dependency and what it does to the family. But it is so much research out there today and statistics and studies are showing that addiction, substance abuse, chemical dependency is now being classified as a brain disease. So in that being a brain disease, it changes or it modifies the structure of the individual's brain who uses substance and almost equating that to that of a starving person. So when you think about it and then you think about how did this disease come about, there are various ways and reasons that we can kind of add to it. But it's there and it it not only affects the individuals, it affects families. It is classified as a family disease. Okay, and you know that's interesting when you when you say um, it's being classified as as a as a brain disease because I can remember years ago when scientists began to do the the um, brain scans, the PET scans, and they would be, they began to be able to identify different parts of the brains that would be affected by certain chemical reactions, you know, certain chemicals and. Um, I can remember when a lot of that research was going on, so that that's really interesting. 
Um, I want to ask and you. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, can I add something? Because that's interesting. Because, Absolutely. You know, in those, in those brain scans that they were doing, mm-hmm. when they would even just mention the word of a particular substance, if that was the substance that the individual used, that part of the brain would light up. So mm-hmm. it, it showed them just what areas and where that particular substance and how it affected the brain. So it gave and it continues to give us a clear picture of how the individual is impacted to the point that they continue to use despite the consequences of their use because many times family members and friends will say, well, just stop using. Don't don't pick up not understanding how the, the because the brain has been changed is not that easy. Wow. Um, so, you know, you, you talked a little bit to, um, you know, how um, to, you know, what is addiction, what is addiction. I want to ask you, why do people use um, or become dependent on substances? And I made me two questions. Why do people use and then why do people become dependent on substances? There's various answers. Um, and I'm not going to say no one answer holds a, a true and fast um, answer to that question. However, they are looking at um, genetics and uh-huh. how substance abuse is found just like other diseases, if you have high blood pressure, diabetes, or any of the other diseases, that there's a family tree or a family line that flows through that. So that's that's one um, rationale for why people become addicted. It runs in the family. You can look back, maybe mom or dad, they had a problem with substance use. Maybe grandfather, grandmother, aunts, uncles, cousins, so it begins to run through the families, and we can see it. Also, the, the you know, they, they call it nature versus nurture. So doing the nurturing side, the culture, you know, a lot of cultures believe in using substances um, around various festivities and celebrations. So it becomes a part of the environment, how, what we do, our relationship to the use of substances and and how it continues to go on in our families. And then also the amount you use and what you use. Some drugs are highly addictive, and it's, it's, it's readily, the person becomes readily addicted to that particular substance and the amount that they use. And then also environmental trauma. If a person has been involved with trauma, and, and, and we're looking more and more at trauma and substance abuse now than what we may have looked at in the past because we're we're recognizing that a lot of the people, a lot of the individuals who have substance abuse problems, some form of trauma, whether it's childhood sexual abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse, domestic violence, um, even witnessing it as a child, a, a young boy or a young girl, witnessing domestic violence committed upon their their mother or their father or even themselves that 
they they may look outside of themselves or develop a substance abuse problem as a means and a way to cope with some of that trauma that they have experienced because they may lack the internal resources needed to get through that, maybe because it was at an early age or it just never was developed or the onset of the trauma or the abuse was so sudden that they really didn't know how to take it in and process it, having the supports available. So they began to turn to the outside resources to help them, such as drugs and alcohol. Hmm. You know, it's interesting. You, you spoke to um, two different um, things that really stood out to me. Um, you, you know, you, you talked about environmental and how we use or different families or um, different cultures, um, you know, incorporate um, dr- certain drugs, chemicals into their um, activities or events. And as you were talking, I was thinking about rite of passage. You know, when you turn 16 or 18 or, you know, 21, you know, it's like a rite of passage to, or 21, it's a rite of a passage to be able to legally, you know, drink alcohol or, you know, a 16 is a really big age. 12, you know, uh, you know, from 12 to 13 is a really big um, um, event, um, milestone. Um, at least in our culture, um, going into your teenage years, and and, and I know that's the age that a lot of uh, youth begin to pick up, you know, different substances. Um, Yeah. You're right. Our culture, you know, because when we think of if there's a wedding, you know, we toast Mm -hmm. the bride and groom, you know, with Mm -hmm. champagne or wine or whatever it is that the, you know, that the couple or the families enjoy drinking mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. At, at funerals, you know, the family members at the repast, we come together and there's food, there's support, but there's also drinking a lot of times and those who use drugs, they may do that as well. You know, holidays, Christmas, mm-hmm. birthdays, you know, Fourth of July, which we're about to celebrate, you know, very soon, St. Patrick's Day, you know, a mm-hmm. lot of holidays, um, or a lot of various celebrations are tied into the use of drugs and alcohol. So it's it's just what we do as a culture, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's there. And also I kind of want to go back to when you asked about um, what is a, addiction, and, and I began mm-hmm. to talk about the American Medical Association, and in that they talk also about the signs and symptoms that identify and classify substance use or substance dependence as a disease. And they look at it as, one, being primary. It is the primary disease. It's not as a, as a result of something else. Oh, I, you know, I, I have a headache and that's why I got substance dependence. Or because I have some other medical problem, that's why I'm, I'm um, dependent upon substance use. So it's Primary, it becomes primary in the individual's life. And then second, mm-hmm. it's a progressive disease. So an individual may start using, I've had clients who have, you know, reported that they have began using as early as eight years old. So, and as they begin to use, their substance use begin to uh, progress. And one of the earliest drugs that adolescents or youth use is nicotine. 
nicotine mm. is a drug, so they begin to use that, and then it can progress on and in, into in, in the use of alcohol if the families had a party and mm. and everybody in, at the at the party may be under the influence and maybe not watching the children, and at the end of the cleanup kids may come and begin to pour the drinks and start drinking that. So family members need to be very careful of their children and where they are when they do have adult beverages around because kids are curious and they try. They say, oh, mom and dad and aunt and uncle and and, and everybody's having a good time, and then they begin to associate the use of substances with having a good time and not recognizing mm-hmm. that you can have a good time without the use of substances. So it, mm-hmm. it, it, it's progressive. The individual mm-hmm. progressively gets worse physically, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, as well as spiritually. And then it's classified mm-hmm. as chronic. It is a chronic disease, so therefore it's no cure. Just like a lot of the other diseases or medical conditions, there is no cure. And if left unchecked or untreated, it has the potential to be fatal. So it has been a lot of premature death as a result of the substance use or the behaviors associated with the substance use. But can you hear what I said? There is hope. There is hope, you know. So an individual does does not have to, their their substance use does not have to lead to premature death. Can you can you talk just a little bit um, to that, um, you know, premature death um, uh, as a result of behavior or or um, uh, as a result of um, just the chemical. Um, reactions to different parts of the body. Can, can you speak a little toward to that a little more? You know, we have a, a saying in treatment, if the drug don't get you, the lifestyle will. You know, so it's certain mm-hmm. lifestyle that go along with certain drugs. You know, you may be out and if you are one, because I work with the criminal justice population, um, you know, mm-hmm. they, they engage in certain risky behavior or um, illegal behaviors such as um, robbing or stealing or um, identity theft or any anything that may associate with that. So if you're out there and you are partaking in that, you the risk of that is raised because you don't know what the consequences of your actions can be as a result of either trying to get money to get your drug or getting your drug in, in, at, along the way. Also, mm-hmm. you don't always know, you know, you, this may be a cool guy to get some drugs from because he's always been faithful, he's always had some good drugs, but you just don't know what you're ingesting. So when you begin mm-hmm. to look at the, the, the damage that drugs and alcohol cause on the physical body. Cirrhosis of the liver is one. You can obtain cancer of the pancreas. That's another one. Cancer of the esophagus. Alcohol is a central nervous system uh, depressant, but it's also an irritant too. So depending on what the alcohol is, and I know nowadays they make, you know, various Alcohol, various alcoholic beverages that are smooth going down, so you don't 
feel the burn, but the minute you ingest mm-hmm. the alcohol, it begins to eat up the esophagus, the lining of the esophagus going down into the stomach and then the liver and the kidneys, and all of this is, is, is incorporated in that in helping the system metabolize or get rid of the substance that it has put in because it recognizes that it's a foreign agent and wow. it tries to get rid of it. So substance abuse has some very damaging effects on the individual physically, emotionally, mm-hmm. psychologically, and spiritually, as well as socially. Okay, okay. Well, you know, um, I'm hearing how addiction affects the um, individual. Can you speak to how um, uh, addiction or dependency affects the, the, the family or the, the, the person's of circle of influence? Well, like I started saying in the beginning, this is a family mm-hmm. disease, just like mm-hmm. other diseases. You know, if someone in the family has a medical condition, say diabetes or heart heart problems or anything, any other type of, mm-hmm. of medical condition, the whole family has to be involved or become involved with that individual in their wealth and their health and whole being. Well, so is the same with substance use. If an individual is, is actively using and abusing drugs and alcohol, it is playing a role on the family, and the family in its efforts to maintain equilibrium and maintain that balance in the family they begin to take on various roles. And in taking on those roles, it's also as a form of a, of a protector, to protect themselves. But it affects everyone. And, um, you know, I've heard so many times that the individual who is in treatment will say, well, I'm not hurting anybody but myself. But if you have a husband, a wife, children, a grandmother, a grandfather. In various cultures, we're very close-knit. So you may be in, in Cleveland or Illinois or California or wherever, and your family member can be somewhere else. But if someone calls and says, oh, so-and-so is struggling, you know, still using and not able to get any sobriety up under them, that affects that family member as though they were right there with, you know, because of the love we have for one another. Okay. Can you give us <clears throat> just one or two examples of, of roles that family members take on? Um, yeah, there, there are a few roles that family members take on. Well, you know, first you have the dependent person. That's the individual. It could be the husband, the wife. The, it could be the child, it can be the grandmother, anybody that is in the family that is using, they become the dependent person. And, mm-hmm. and because substance use is such an insidious disease, it, it comes in and it's, it, 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 it comes in and it makes you think that, oh, you're, you're this charming, you're successful, you're the life of the party. You know, you, you carry the, the humor and the jokes, but it turns on you. So the dependent person is there, and um, that's the, the main role. And then you have the chief enabler, 
And the chief enabler is the one who comes in and they try to maintain and keep the balance in the family as well. And they may be enabling that dependent person to use whatever the substance is without even knowing that that's what they're doing. They may think that they're helping. They may go around and they, um, if if the dependent person uh, misses work, they may call in and say, oh, I'm sorry, he, he or she can't come to work today. He's not feeling good or she's not feeling well. Um, they may call school and say, oh, well, you know, he's running the temperature or she's running the temperature, so they won't be in school today. So they protect the individual without them being able to deal with any of the consequences of their behavior. But they're loving, they're, care- they're caring, mm-hmm. but they take on a lot of responsibility in that role. And then you have the role of the hero. So if we're talking about a family system where there's a mom, a dad, and then the children, one of the children may take on the role as the hero, and that person is the one that feels as though they have to bring validity to the family. And in bringing that, they may be on the honor roll or the merit roll. They may get all these accolades. They may um, be the one that the family say, well, there's somebody good in that family that, that came out of that. You know, and then you may have the scapegoat. And the scapegoat, a lot of times, that um, that role, that individual may be angry, may not be responsible for their, their actions. They may start using substances at an early age. Um, they may be low achievers. They may want the, tr- the, the attention of the family, but the family may be so focused on the dependent person that that person feels neglected or negated from the family. So they go out, and, and a lot of times with the scapegoat, they may go out and get involved with gangs or people who will accept them and take them on as, as part of the family to give them the love and the attention that they're looking for. And then you have the mascot. The mascot is the funny one. He's the, the mascot is the one that makes us laugh, or tells the jokes, or do the things. They're so charming and um takes the the focus off the dependent person through humor. And then you have the lost child. The lost child is one that you don't you don't worry about a lot of times. Um, that's the one where that child may um have a little kitty. you know, that's what I, I see when I, I think of the lost child may have a little kitty or a little puppy and they sit in front of the T V and they sit there and, and they just kinda take care of themselves. They know how to go and, and, and fix their own food and maybe wash their own clothes. So they become so self-sufficient that people just kind of, oh, they're okay. They, they kind of can take care of themselves. But in them also they can develop certain issues that go along with that because they, they're not receiving the attention and the love that's needed in the family. So the roles are very important, and 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 we begin to take them on, say, as a way to maintain balance and equilibrium in the family system and not even realize that that's what we're doing a lot of times. Hmm. Okay, very, very interesting. Um, let me see. I want to ask you, I hear a lot about codependency, um, 
when I, you know, when, uh, dealing with uh, dependency and, and, and family systems. Can you speak a little bit to, you know, what is codependency? Well, you know, codependency um, kind of emerged in the in the eighties, and um, it it de- it defines anyone whose life is seriously affected by someone who is dependent upon a substance, or the the behavior it can be behavioral too. So, if the person is um, demonstrating risky behavior, they, um, someone else can be codependent with them as a result of that. So you begin to, as a codependent person, you begin to, um, you, 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 you protect, you help, you're there, you know, and these are just some of the, the behaviors that go along with that. But on the, on the negative side, you know, they do try to maintain balance. They deny their own needs and feelings. They stay in various relationships that are unhealthy, despite some of the emotional, physical, or psychological pain that they may experience. Um, there's, um, and I, 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 I guess my thoughts are running so fast here, with the codependent person, um, they look at it as, as healthy. But in, in actuality, it, it, it lowers their self-esteem but it also keeps that cycle of addiction going for that dependent person too a lot of times. Okay, very interesting. Let's let's talk about um so so now we kind of have an idea of addiction or dependency what it looks like, what the characteristics look like, how it affects the individual, how it affects the family. What about um you know, recovery. Can you describe, um, or how would you describe recovery or wellness? Because that's a new term that is coming around uh, when you're talking about recovery. Um, wow, that that goes back to the, the beginning of our conversation, you know, mm-hmm. and where my motivation and my excitement lies, and it lies in recovery, and it is the the time of healing that a person goes through from the devastation and the negative impact that their substance use and their behavior has had in their lives. So you you when a person enters in recovery, there there dimensions that they need to kind of look at, if you will. SAMHSA has um and and I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about SAMHSA too. Um, along the way, but they start looking at um, some of the eight dimensions of wellness, and they identify Mm. emotional wellness, and that's developing skills and strategies to cope with stress. And, and, you know, we live in a very stressful society, so how Mm -hmm. do you begin to cope with some of the stress? What are some of the tools or techniques that you can use so that when you are impacted or faced with challenges, that you can go into your toolbox and begin to use. Um, they also looked at financial wellness because mm-hmm. we know when a person uses and abuses drugs and alcohol, that their finances suffer, you know, um, because you may be taking money from the family um, in, in, in terms of 
the kids may not have the shoes or the clothes or the, the, the rent or the food or whatever it is that you may take from the family. And because this disease is so insidious, it, it, it lies to us. It fools us in saying that, oh, I'll put it back or I'm just going to use a little bit so I won't use it all. And then you begin to chip and chip and chip until you realize that there's nothing left. So there's a financial wellness that goes along with recovery. And then a lot of times we get in trouble with financial institutions from getting money to to fuel and to feed our substance use. And then wellness, social wellness, developing a sense of connectedness and well-developed support systems. Because one of the things that a person who's using and abusing drugs and alcohol they begin to narrow their social involvement down because if you don't do what I do nine times out of ten, I don't want to be around you, you know. So Mm -hmm. you begin to just be around people that may use and abuse drugs and alcohol like you do, or you begin to isolate yourself from, from your family members so that you can continue because you may not want them to know what's going on. And then there is the environmental wellness, um, good health by occupying pleasant, stimulating environment that supports well-being. That is one of the criteria that we put on our discharge letters um, going to the court, that the client obtain and maintain a sober environment that is conducive to recovery. And the family members can be a part of that by not, um, not contributing to the youth, not having, if, if they know that their, their loved one has a problem with alcohol, maybe not having alcohol in the household, um, setting up certain barriers, making that a sober environment, um, reestablishing life. It, it's learning to live again. And and that's what recovery is, learning to live again. So then there's the intellectual wellness, um, recognizing creative abilities and finding ways to expand our knowledge and skill. And then there's the physical. You know, it takes time a lot of times to, to heal and recover from the physical damage that substance use has done. And then the occupational, a lot of people may have lost their jobs. As a, reu- mm-hmm. as a result of their using drugs and alcohol for various reasons, not showing up, um, sleeping on the job, using while at work, mis- being missing in action, MIA, and you're supposed to be on the job. And then there's the spiritual component. You know, this, this um, disease is classified as a biopsychosocial and spiritual disease because it affects all of those areas. So the spiritual aspect of recovery is greatly important too and and how you begin to reconnect spiritually not only to yourself but whatever your belief system is. Okay. You know, it's really um, good. It's really nice to see SAMHSA looking at recovery from a holistic perspective. You know, it's not just about putting the drug down, but it's about learning how to develop or redevelop, um, you know, uh, in in other areas of your life as well. 
And um, as I'm listening to you talk about, you know, recovery uh, from a, um, a client perspective, um, you know, I'm thinking that recovery not only does the affect uh, or the uh, dependent individual uh, can the affected individual experience recovery, which sounds like a process, but also it sounds like the family members also um, go through or can go through a recovery um, in these areas as well. Well, it, it, and that's true. Mm-hmm. That's a, a good observation and, and, and comment there because as, you know, the, the, your loved one goes through treatment, substance abuse treatment, um, and they begin to learn the aspects of what the addiction has done to them, what their substance use, the damage that has done not only to them, to them but to their family members, the families need to heal as well because they have been under the stress and the pressure of that dependent person's use. And they rally around them to, like I said, to maintain that balance or that equilibrium so that they can continue to function as best that they know how. So when the individual goes into treatment and they begin to go and and start going to 12-step meetings and and learning some of the tools and techniques that go along with that, the family members need to be in a form of recovery too so that they can heal from some of the anger, the damage, the confusion, the conflict that they have been in in, um, in direct relation with as a result of the family member using. Okay. And I'm I'm really happy to hear you speak to that because it's so easy. Um, you know, if I have um, you know, someone um who in my life who is dependent on substances and I'm not, I'm getting up every day going to work, I'm, you know, taking care of my responsibilities it's so easy for me to believe that I don't have a problem. You're the one with the mm-hmm. problem. You know, if you get better, everything will be okay. And and the real the truth is that, you know, if some if if someone is dependent in your circle, that you you know that 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 you are affected by it. You know, you Definitely. are affected, and it it is affecting your life in in negative ways as well as the person who is who is dependent. So, um, yeah, I'm really Absolutely. glad that you, um, mm-hmm, that you spoke to that. I want to ask you, is recovery, does recovery uh, dif- look different for men than, than it does for women, you know, that process? Um, not only does recovery look a little different, so does substance use. And the mm-hmm. National Institute of Health they have some literature that is out there, and they say that it's an estimate 5.3 million women in the United States, in the I'm sorry, in the United States, that drink in a way that threatens her health, safety, and general well-being. And as we begin to look at that, um, heavy drinking, and I'm gonna kind of stay with with the drinking, but we know that this is across the line with any substance that a woman may pick up, that um, heavy drinking increases um, a woman's risk for becoming a victim of violence and sexual assault. And drinking over over the long term is more likely to damage the woman's health than a man's 
even if the woman has been drinking, um, has not been drinking as much alcohol or as long as the man has been drinking. And then the alcohol-related liver diseases, women um, are more likely to develop, to develop hepatitis and die, and die from cirrhosis of the liver because of their heavy drinking. And then we already know that it is a brain disease, but it can reduce the functioning of the brain, and women are more vulnerable than men in those related areas. And then just other cancers, um, studies show that heavy drinking associates with breast cancer and um, the digestive tract, as we talked about earlier, and as you're taking in the um, the substance and how it, it goes in and it's burning and it's eating up the lining of the esophagus and all in the stomach lining and everything. And that's associated also with, with smoking, so nicotine. You know, you're you're literally taking in fire, <laughs> you know, you have took wow. a match or some form of fire and you have lit this um, tobacco and it is it's on fire and you're breathing in and you're taking this in. So chronic heart, you know, um, heart disease, cardiovascular, so women are a lot more susceptible to various diseases and disorders as a result of their use. And then a lot of times they come along if a woman is pregnant. You know, her youth has a direct impact on her unborn child. So it, it's, you know, it, it's vital that she gets help and assistance. And, and you know, we, I had talked about how, you know, the stigma that goes along with using drugs and alcohol and some of the terminology that's used. And I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, your listeners, as they're listening, and those, if you think that there is, you may have a problem with substance use, especially if you are a female and you have an unborn child, or you may even think about getting pregnant in the future, that you begin to take care of yourself and eat right. It affects our, our, our sleeping, our thinking, our eating. It affects every area of our lives. So if you are are pregnant with this unborn child and you are ingesting any form of substances, the chances are you're not sleeping properly. You are not eating properly. You're not getting the exercise or the rest or the the um, recreation that's needed to have a healthy a healthy delivery. You know, you may not even go to the doctor, you know, because you don't want the doctor to know that you are using a, a, a substance. So, uh, yes, recovery, you know, it, it involves the family and then women as they're recovered because a lot of times we are the the primary caregiver of our children. We, we're concerned with if I go into treatment, who will take care of my children, you know, if daycare is available. So as they enter in treatment, hopefully the treatment facilities that they engage in will be able to address some of those issues that are unique to women and their health and their recovery, you know, um, obtaining employment and staying employed. A lot of women, um, I mentioned trauma, they may be in, in, in a home where there's domestic violence and she mm-hmm. may not be at the point that she can leave yet because she has no she has no money, you know she yeah. does not have um you know she's unemployed or she may be on public assistance or maybe she's underemployed and cannot afford the housing 
uh, that's needed to care for herself as well as her children. So, you know, there are some barriers, but, again, there's hope. You know, there's hope because there are agencies out there that, you know, offer hope and help and assistance. And SAMHSA um, is a great place to go. And as we know, SAMHSA stands for Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration. And they have services. They have um, a 24-hour hotline. You, you know, our readers can, I'm sorry, our listeners can go online and they can look at www.samsa, and SAMHSA is spelled S-A-M-H-S-A dot gov. And when they go online there, there's a wealth of information that SAMHSA talks about. They they talk about suicide prevention. They talk about treatment locators, 24-hour treatment referral line, prevention of substance abuse and mental health, Military families, and military families are affected by substance abuse at a at a high rate as well. Mm-hmm. Trauma, recovery, support, support is so vital as we go through recovery. And just like an individual um, receives support from other um, diseases or health issues that help them along the way. Somebody may bring them food or may come and clean the house or, or do certain things that, that matches what that individual needs to recover. We have to uh-huh. give the right support to match what's needed in recovery as well mm-hmm. from substance abuse. So SAMHSA mm-hmm. also has um, um, an eight, well, 877 number that um, you can call also, and they are willing to help and ready to help. And and that is 877, and it's spelled out SAMHSA, S-A-M-H-S-A-7. So there you'll be able to find help as well. But SAMHSA, the National Institute of Health, um, the National Clearinghouse for Alcohol and Drug Information, your... Um, AA, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, you can go anywhere around the world and you can find AA meetings, you know, Al-Anon for family members, um, Al-Teen, Al-Tot for the children, codependency meetings. So those are some of the things that family members can tap into to, um, you know, begin to get the help and the support that they need as that their family member heals from, you know, substance use and substance abuse. Well, thank you for that. And what I'm hearing, what it sounds like I'm hearing you say is that, you know, um, you know, having access to the right supports is vital um, yes. in, in, in being healthy, not only for the um, person who um, has a problem with the substance, but also for the family members. Um, you know, right. that, that that support is vital to, um, you know, beginning to develop a healthy lifestyle. Right, right. And wow. if the family members are there and they're supportive, um, you know, it's so easy to be punitive to the individual who's using drugs and alcohol because we see the negative behaviors that come out of that. 
So we mm-hmm. get hurt. We get, you know, anger arises. Um, we're frustrated. We're tired. We want to walk away. It, it brings up so many feelings and emotions that are attached to it because, again, we're not looking at it as a disease. We're looking at you can do this. And until a form of intervention has occurred, a lot of times people don't know how to stop. They, they can stop, but they don't know how to stay stopped. So if the family mm-hmm. members, you know, they need to um, begin to educate themselves not so much on addiction, which is, is they need that too, but as well as the process of recovery and what recovery looks like. They're saying in those um, those um, organizations and agencies that I named, you can go there and get so much information, and a lot of this information is free. They will mail it to you so that you can have it on hand. You know, providing a sober environment, seeking professional help. A lot of times we don't want to go to counseling. Mm-hmm. And it's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with going to counseling. You know, we think, oh, I can do it on my own or I can do it myself. I don't need this. I don't need, I don't want nobody all up in my business, you know. Mm-hmm. But those are some of the, the, the barriers that we need to begin to look at and come up against so that we can get the help that we need, so that we can have healthy families, we can have healthy communities and environments once again. So seeking professional and peer support is vital. And and, and, and if you're going to help your loved one, help them get to a meeting. You know, a lot of times family members come out of treatment and and the family begin to say, well, why you got to go to so many meetings? And is that necessary? And it is because mm-hmm. this disease does not take a vacation. It is there. It is waiting for that individual to stop doing the things that they need to do in order to continue to go towards health. So as they come out, encourage them. You know, I would encourage the, the family members to encourage their loved one Go to a meeting, get a sponsor, get involved in a home group because you want them to begin to build a, a foundation for recovery that is healthy so that when stressors come in life, they have something that they have begun to plant their foundation of recovery on and that they won't fall or relapse in the time of trouble or challenges. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow, that sounds like very sound advice. And what are what are the three um um some of the, I was thinking about this the the three um rules of um of um of of um dysfunctional family. Don't talk, don't tell. What is it? Those three? Don't talk, don't tell, don't Well, um yeah, that and that's interesting because um you're right, in dysfunctional families, we do learn not to trust, you know, mm-hmm. so don't trust anybody. Um, don't We don't even trust ourselves, and that this is the, you know, the, um, the paradigm to this because as we grow up, and we grow up with these, these, these hard and fast rules, if you will, that we, we don't trust. And you, I hear a lot of people in treatment say, well, oh, I don't trust them. I'm not going to tell them my business. Or I don't trust my therapist. Or I don't trust the system. 
So, you know, we learn that. And then we learn don't talk, you know. And, and I know for some cultures it's been that thing, don't, don't go out my house talking. Don't be telling everybody all our business and what's going on. So, we, you know, we're taught to keep secrets. Um, but Suzanne, um, um, oh, my God, I can't think of her name right Summers, now. She plays Suzanne Chrissy. Summers? Suzanne right, Summers? Suzanne Summers. You know, mm-hmm. she has a, a book out there, um, Keeping Secrets, and she talks about mm-hmm. some of the things that she went through growing up in a household where there was substance use. So we learn not to talk. We learn not to trust, and we also learn not to feel. So we, we can't trust our own feelings. Or um, we, you know, the codependency or the enabling comes into play, and we look for validation of who we are from the outside. So we become dependent or codependent on someone else to tell us what we should think and what we should feel and how we should be because of these these um, behaviors that have been taught or been brought up, you know, through our childhood. Yes, and recovery, the road to recovery teaches us how to how to how to let go of that negative behavior and and how to become healthy, how to become well, how to become well. Right, wow. Right. right. And, and you know, recovery mm-hmm. is is, mm-hmm. is is no magic bullet for recovery. Mm-hmm. It takes hard work. It you have to be consistent. Yeah. You have to be committed. You know, you have to yeah. be committed to change, you know, because, yeah. you know, the, the other saying is you got to change your people, places, and things. So you yeah. have to be committed to to wanting recovery because just like it, you don't get where you are um, in that deteriorated state overnight because mm-hmm. the disease is progressive, it's a progressive mm-hmm. step towards recovery. But don't give right. up. You know, don't give up, don't give in. Hold on and don't look back. (laughs) You know, it's there. Thank you so Wow, you have given us a wealth of information and resources. Thank you so much, Shari. Um, Thank you so much. (laughs) Wow, and I want to welcome... Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. You know, I have this poem that... I, I usually um, read and I give to the clients that I have worked with over the years. And do I have time to read it? It's not that long. Well, I don't. I don't think we have time to read it. But um, I would like to post it on the show. Uh, you know, I'll post it on the show page. Okay, that sounds great. Oh, that sounds great. Awesome, awesome. All right. Wow. See that hour went by so quickly. Um, <laughs> We, um, you know, we want to thank you, Shari, for um, being on our show, and we want to thank you, our listening audience, for tuning in to another edition of Positively Affirmative. This is the show where we affirm you, our listening audience, with education, information, and resources in the areas of self-care, career development, wealth building, and money management um, challenges and solutions. I am your host, Katrina Jones, Prosperity Life Coach of Satari Life Skills Institute, where we teach women to create positive shifts in their work-life balance 
so they can become the director of their own life stories. All right, Cherie, thank you so much again for joining us, okay? Thank you, Katrina, for having me. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. And everybody, have a great week, and we'll see you next week. Okay, blessings. Bye. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. Don't mess with Mr. In-Between. Don't mess with Mr. In-Between.